So I think that the biggest hurdles now for people investing in real estate are the high interest rates, right? So we we thought, oh, high interest rates, well, that means the prices are going to go down, but they didn't. So now we've got high prices still and then high interest rates, which double people's monthly payments. And so a lot of people are just not able to get cash flow doing that anymore, right? So there are different creative financing strategies like seller financing, which is the one that people are the most familiar with. But there's other ones where you can take over people's mortgages. So um, most people want to jump to thinking it's an assumption of the mortgage, but they they don't have to be. Um, you can do something called subject to, which means that you're just taking over the mortgage payments. So you can kind of get set up on their auto pay, take over their payments, and get to reap a lower interest rate, which can be great. Welcome to the Real Estate Law Podcast. Thanks again for listening to us. We have such great energy on this episode, Rory. I can guarantee it. I mean, I couldn't think of a better guest to talk about some new and exciting ways to really you know, take advantage of this market. We have a real go-getter on the, the podcast today, somebody we're kind of starstruck to have on. And yeah. you know, all of our listeners really take notes here because you'll see some of the story this past year has been that it's really difficult to get into the real estate space, but there are opportunities out there and we're going to go over um, some of the opportunities that do exist in the, the real estate market. I have such an interesting relationship with this guest. This is Ziana McIntyre, by the way. Hi, Ziana. It's nice to see you. Hey. Yeah, thanks for having me. I actually saw Ziana speak at the Bigger Pockets conference in 2022, and she had zero idea who I was, did not realize that I was in the, the audience in legitimately a standing room only room. I don't know if that was intimidating or not to you, but that was probably one of the biggest sessions. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surprising. So, yeah. We, we've talked about the value of network, networking a lot on this podcast, and I was at a, a conference a year ago today in Miami, the STR Wealth Retreat, where I met a f- common friend of ours, Jake Cohen, and we spent the entire time together at the conference. He was my conference buddy. I think I was one of his conference buddies. He was a very popular guy, but you know, um, Jake invited both of us. Uh, we didn't know each other at the time. We invited both of us to one of his short-term rentals in Steamboat Springs, Colorado this past spring. And I met Ziana in the living room in that short-term rental. And we were having a week of think tanking and masterminding and comparing notes and getting to know you know people really intimately like on an operational level and a personal level. And we spent a few days together and oh my God, what energy does oh. Ziana have? She set me down a, a path, which I'll describe a little bit on, on this podcast, but once I put it together, I was like, wait a second, you're the person I saw speak at Bigger Pockets. It was a bit of a starstruck moment. And then we just hung out. Then we were just friends, you know, eating, drinking together, taking walks together. So yeah. welcome. I love that it comes full circle. <laughs> it does. Yeah. You know, what I've learned about you is you give so much. Like, and I think that it's not just the energy that you exude and, you know, you and your new husband, which we'll have to talk about on this podcast. You know, you've written books, you're an expert, you are a real estate agent where you're doing creative financing deals across the country, not just in your home market. There's so much I want to get into, Ziana. But, you know, first of all, big welcome and thank you for recording with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Okay, so you're known as the MTR person. Like you are a medium term rental, you are branded through and through with that. And you've probably, I mean, your book came out a year ago, right? Yeah. It came out in Yeah, November. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Before we talk about the creative financing, like, you know, it's been a year of you really, really being this massive medium term rental expert. What, how has that changed your life or what is that, what has that journey been like? Wow. Well, writing a book is really surreal. (laughs) It's like, it's a personal growth journey, just writing it. So showing up every day and saying, I'm going to do this thing, whether you feel like it or are in super flow or you show up and you're doubting yourself the whole time. It's just like showing up and committing and doing the work as you're going. And so as we were writing the book, it, and I have a co-author, so that's why I say we, um, we didn't really know. Like, we didn't know if this would be an interesting topic. We didn't know who would read it, if it would just be like five friends and your mom. You know, so it's really cool now to hear from people where it's really affected their business or changed the course of their lives or something. So um, I still don't really believe it. It's kind of weird, but I am so grateful for the opportunity. Three minutes before we hit um, the the link to start recording this, I'm negotiating with an agency that has placed people in one of our short-term rentals and wants to extend the stay. And I'm booked right afterward, but I'm trying to give as many options as possible. I'm like, well, we own two properties next to it and I can put you in this one for this week or these five days. And then, you know, I don't know what to do for two days, but then I had this original property open for a couple weeks and I had this other one about 40 minutes north in Guilford, New Hampshire, that's available the entire time that you wanted. It's a little bit bigger, but, you know, I see the need for this just from this one little booking that we got. And the booking came from Homelink, I think it was. I don't know if you know them, but they were just- nice. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but- they clearly placed this family. I'm not sure exactly why, and you know, it's none of my business. But I had a feeling they were going to need to ex- extend, and it's bummed because we're 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 in the middle of a big short-term rental season in New England, so it's yeah. tough to offer that up. But you know, in preparation for this podcast, I finally signed up for Furnish Finder this week for two of our. Oh, great! Yeah. Well, actually, let's talk about that. What websites yeah. are you on? Because I have. My top four, so maybe I'll just say those. I think everybody who wants to do MTR, which is midterm or medium-term rentals, 30 days plus renting, you want to be on Airbnb. You want to be on Zillow. A lot of people don't realize Zillow is a good one. Um, Then Furnish Finder, of course. And my new favorite is Landing. Have you heard of Landing? I think I've only heard of it because of you, but I'm not on there yet. Okay, great. Well, get on there. Um, and I have that link. So go check that out because it'll get you an extra $50 when you get your first guest. But I've had really two really long and great bookings come from landing already. And I've just started with them. Yeah. So, yeah. One thing you're really great at is sharing all this on your social media. You didn't remember this in Steamboat, but I, I saw you in action once too, where it feels like there's this like massive factory behind it. I know you have an assistant that helps with some of this, but like you legitimately just excuse yourself for a second and then there you are talking to your camera and your audience and then you come back to you know to what we were doing and and you give such value with what you share because they're real life stories and the real life story that you shared right there was legitimately something we just talked about so you know you, you have this influencer world and we had a long conversation about this but talk about what it's like to you know be talking to a camera talking to your audience getting feedback from them and honestly, helping change people's lives by doing it. Yeah. Oh, man. It took me a really long time to be okay to be on the camera. <laughs> I think my social media team was like, hey, you need to do this for like, I, I almost like a year before I started doing reels because I just didn't feel comfortable and didn't want to do it. 
Um, but I think it's always about getting out of my own way and realizing like, yeah, I'm afraid of public speaking, but I'm still going to go do it because I'm here to help people. Right. So it's the same thing with the social media. I find it can be really annoying to have to try to come up with something every day and um, maybe takes you out of the moment if you're having to take pictures and all these things. But if it's helping somebody when you get those messages, it's so valuable um, and it feels so rewarding. So I'm keeping up for it now. We'll see. Rory's another reluctant camera person, but I've dragged yeah. him into this video podcast, right? Yeah, but let me ask you then, if you're as you put together the content, you know, what's the inspiration for things that are going to be helpful for your audience? I see lots of bad examples out there of people using reels in a very self-promoting kind of way that doesn't really add any value or help out. How do you come up with the topics? How do you really know what to talk about when you do the reels? Yeah, I mean, I think an easy grab is that if people ask you questions, which a lot of people DM me asking questions, so I could literally just copy all these questions and then just answer them in reels. Um, I've done that in the past, but now I try to just do stuff that I feel inspired by. So if I get a like a moment of inspiration, I can't do it right then. And I try to take a note right away and then do it soon after because the inspiration tends to fade. And then I find that they're not as good. There's like this moment of excitement about it. And then they they carry better energy that way. I'm just a little woo woo. <laughs> that was a reel you posted this week, and and this will allow us to take a step back into the why of all this. I I forget what it was, but it was like your your twenty eighty rule or something, or your two minute eight minutes. So it was like spend two minutes booking a trip and travel around the world for sixty days, and then you know I forget exactly what it was, but it was very Ziana, and I'm like, oh, this is exactly like her brand. Do you remember yeah, what that it was? was kind of a joke? Uh, I don't know it exactly, but it was something like, you know, work 20 minutes and then spend, you know, 80 minutes booking flights and like, you know, yeah. getting away from your work <laughs> so that you can. Yeah, it, it was just kind of talking about balance, but in a joking way that it's so easy to get sucked into working all the time, especially as an entrepreneur or someone who's on a quest, if you're on a quest for financial independence or building a real estate empire. It's so easy to just work all the time and forget like, oh, I'm working so that I can have more free time, right? So should I just take my free time now? Yeah. So you got to get that balance in there. Yeah. And that that's the step back. I know we jump right into some of the nuts and bolts of what you do. And it's important to be an expert in fields to be able to live the lifestyle that you're living. But bigger picture here. I mean, you're, you travel the world, right? Like you, you're unabashedly everywhere, right? You travel uh, minding pets, which I thought was fascinating. You'll have to tell us about that. I'm doing uh, that right now. You're doing that right now. Really? That right now. <laughs> okay. So t- talk about the why behind all this. And then I, I want to I sure. reveal that little pet sitting um, secret that you told people about. Well, the why for me, like my biggest value is freedom. So I want to be able to move around the world in an easeful way. And pet sitting is my favorite hack for that. And then it also incorporates house hacking, which is how we kind of live for free. So we have a home that we rent out on Airbnb when we're not home. And when in our our like hometown, you've got six months that you can rent out your place and you have to have at least six months in the home as a primary. So we try to ride that line as close as we can and just be out of our house as much as possible. So instead of having to rent a place while we're gone, we're doing an exchange with people where we pet sit for them. So we go on stay in their home for free and then we rent out our home. And we're not getting paid from the people, but we get paid by renting our home. So that could be like $300 a night just for being in someone's fancy house. So 
We are very picky and we try to be in places with hot tubs or movie theaters or fancy views or, you know, something great. And that's that's how we get around. So it's great. Places where you could surf every day, right? Yes, we did that in Mexico. We were there for a month and that was really fun. Totally. Yeah. Before I'd never heard of that hack before, but when I came back from Steamboat, I was like, you have to listen to what some of these people are doing. <laughs> Brewery's like, I'm a homebody. Leave me alone. <laughs> no. Without short-term rentals in our portfolio, there'd be a constraint on what um, flexibility we have. What's interesting when having these conversations is what it means for everybody looks very different. Uh, what somebody, what one person does with their freedom is very different from what another does with their freedom. Um, we talk about, you know, freedom from work, but a lot of people still choose to work. They just have, you know, freedom in what they choose to do for work. I love having these conversations just because the diversity of uh, results is amazing. Yeah, I like the freedom from not having to work, but I don't know if I would want to completely stop. Right. Because I think I'd get bored. I like the hustle that like gives me some excitement. Um, so it's just being able to work in the hours that I want to work and not not as long as normal people do. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a degree of free spiritness in your life, but you are a very hard worker and you've built these businesses. You're an author. You're referring business left and right. That is one of the big differences, I would think, to the typical person that you see just wandering the world. Oh, I'm wandering the world. I'm a travel influencer or I want to live in beach communities or whatever. But it's like, well, who's financing this? And, and the answer is you're financing this, right? Like mm-hmm. you're doing all this yourself, which is you know, the hustle that goes into um, the life that you choose to live. Let's talk about creative financing, because when you when we were together, you were talking about how you refer deals out a lot and you're, you, you earn a lot of commissions through referrals. And I've seen some of your emails because I'm on your, your database now. And, you know, it's a pretty remarkable message that you put out there to people. Maybe it's something that lots of people are doing that I'm just not aware of. And I just know that that this is one thing that seems successful for you. But talk a bit about why you chose to kind of build your real estate referral business up in the manner that you did. Yeah. So I knew as soon as I was becoming a real estate agent that I couldn't do it the way that the average real estate agent does it. Because I think that once people become an agent, they think, okay, well, I'll never be able to travel again because I have to be available for my clients and I need to be able to take them out, you know, nights and weekends and and drive them around. And so I had to figure out another way because I'm not giving up my lifestyle for this other type of work. Right. So I just partnered up with a lot of people and decided I would do referrals. And at first I was doing some of them myself so I could kind of learn how it goes. But after that, it's I'm not taking any personal clients. Like I, everybody is split and I'd rather have 50% of a deal than a hundred percent and lose my, my kind of freedom again. Right. So it always comes back to that. Um, and this also allows me to refer all over the U S so I do that as well. And it's really fun because now I have been able to visit houses I've sold. So we stayed in a house that I sold in Mexico even, and a house recently in Hawaii. Yeah. That's really fun to have clients all over. Rory, talk about what that would look like, you know, for some of your agents or some of the people that you've dealt with. Like, are you coming across a lot of real estate professionals that are building their business through a referral network like Susiana? No, not many. What I do see in the market, a lot of people use the referrals as a way to retire. So after they've built up a book of business um, and they've worked in the industry for decades, 
they could turn around and still monetize their relationships by um, referring their business out to trusted partners. But that often mimics the the geographical footprint that the agent had in the first place. But it's a you know creative way to approach the business to to coach people and to refer people across the country. Um, and I imagine that you provide a little bit of value for the people who come into you at first and make sure that you're setting them up with the right agent, the right partnership in their part of the country. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of vetting that happens up front. And then we've kind of built out a list of people, me and my assistant. And then once we worked with people a few times, then we feel really good about them and it's easy to refer them, right? So yeah, I, I've really loved just also building these relationships with agents all over the country. It's fun. I noticed in the email that you sent out, I mean, it's very detailed for investors, you know, because it's unless there's a whole separate list that I'm I'm not on, the ones that I receive are in short-term rental friendly locations where you actually dig into some of the numbers and you mention if it is an opportunity for a subject to deal. Talk about why you went with that approach. I think it's obvious why, but you know, let's uh, let's hear exactly from you as to why you're putting some of those numbers in front of the people that you're marketing to. Yeah. So I think that the biggest hurdles now for people investing in real estate are the high interest rates. Right. So we we thought, oh, high interest rates. Well, that means the prices are going to go down, but they didn't. So now we've got high prices still and then high interest rates, which double people's monthly payments. And so a lot of people are just not able to get cash flow doing that anymore. Right. So there are different creative financing strategies like seller financing, which is the one that people are the most familiar with. Um, but there's other ones where you can take over people's mortgages. So um, most people want to jump to thinking it's an assumption of the mortgage, but they they don't have to be. Um, you can do something called subject to, which means that you're just taking over the mortgage payments. So you can kind of get set up on their auto pay, take over their payments, and get to reap a lower interest rate, which can be great. So there's a lot of cool creative ways to get a lower payment that can give people cash flow when they didn't have it before. Rory, let's talk about some of the subject to concerns that you and I have spitballed back and forth frequently. Yeah. And, you know, before we get too far, I just want to make sure that, you know, we're describing these in a way that all the, the listeners can understand. Um, and if you disagree with the way I'm characterizing these, let me know. Um, but we're talking about two creative financing strategies here. One is seller financing, kind of the more traditional one where a seller basically owns a property outright. They agree to sell the property to you, um, but they'll take either no money or just a smaller down payment up front, and they agree to become the bank and lend you money over time, so you'll pay, make payments into the seller. Um, there's a host of reasons why people want to do that, um, including the sellers. Now, it becomes a little bit more complicated when the properties have, the seller has a mortgage on the, the property, and one of the strategies now, subject to, is to take over, to purchase the property, and then make the payments on behalf of that seller for either all or a duration of uh, that loan. Um, but the, really the big hang up and the big tricky part here is that most loans will have a due on sale provision so that once a property is sold to somebody else, the lender can demand that the loan gets paid off immediately. And that's kind of the big hang up in the subject to world that you know I've always had a little bit of um, skepticism about because I'm an attorney. I can tend to be pretty risk averse. Um, I see that yeah. due on sale provision is a huge hurdle there. And 
what a lot of the leaders in the space are doing are just coming up with elaborate ways to kind of hide the transaction from the bank. Um, am I describing things incorrectly about the sub the subject to deals? Yeah, well, you don't necessarily have to hide it from the bank either. So I have a friend who did over 100 subject to deals. They were big also in the 80s when there was high interest rates, right? Um, and he was doing them then. And he was actually writing um, a certified letter, sending a certified letter to the mortgage companies and saying, hey, we're taking over this mortgage now. And it was because most of the ones he was taking over were pre-foreclosure, right? They hadn't been paid in a while. And so he wanted to say, hey, they're going to be taking care of everything's good. And they never got called due. They were just excited to get a payment. So I think it depends. I've heard that it's incredibly rare that these loans get called due. And again, it's the mortgage companies are happy generally when they're getting paid. Um, but if it did get called due, it's just good to have an like a plan B, right? And so all my clients pre-sign a quick claim deed. And so they can roll it easily back into the seller's name. And you get a cure period. So I've heard it's nine months, but maybe you know, you know that could vary from mortgage company to mortgage company. But it's not like they say it's due tomorrow. So you've got some time to fix it. Right. And so if you wanted to roll it back into the seller's name, then you could do a lease option agreement. So you could have the exact same terms, but then it doesn't actually roll into the buyer's name until they exercise the option. So, you know, there's different ways to structure kind of the same terms if you have to, you know, change it. So it's just good to have a backup plan. So, you know, when I hear these, the links that you ha you should go to make a sub two deal work and cover everybody. It, it tells me that it's not for everybody. Um, you know, certainly I think this is largely meant for real estate investors. This is probably a very difficult way to get a primary residence. It's available for somebody who understands the risk that they're taking and who understands um, what would have to be done if you know, all these different outcomes come to pass. Yeah, I think the more you get familiar with it, then the more you realize it could be for anybody. But at first, it seems confusing. So like I would completely buy a primary this way. But it's because I feel really comfortable with it. Interesting. So hot take there. You could actually use it for <laughs> <laughs> for for a primary home. Rory, to play devil's advocate a little bit. All right. You know, interest rates are so high right now. There's a lot of loans sitting out there that are sub four percent. What is it, eighty percent of mortgages or something like that are really I think it's ninety percent. Really high. Yeah. Right. And they're in the threes. So yes. Yeah. It's it's just wild. Do you think, Rory, banks would have started calling these loans if they planned to do it by now? So that is a good point. And, you know, the conditions are ripe right now where the interest rates have gotten up. A lot of lenders may want to get these low interest rates uh, mortgages off the books. Um, certainly getting paid is better than having to go into foreclosure, but that's also not, a lot of foreclosures in the market is still relatively minimal. Um, so there is an incentive for banks to maybe call these loans if they could and get some of the low interest rate ones off the books. Um, but these lenders also have a risk in and of that for themselves too. If they kind of upset um, the apple cart and get um, and stop these payments that they're getting, um, and demand it comes due, there's risk there. They, you know, they may actually turn a performing loan into a bad loan um, overnight. So. There's a risk calculus on their end too. You know, I'm watching this closely to see if we start to have more and more reports of lenders calling uh, the loans. But, you know, despite my concerns, we haven't seen that. Yeah. 
And I sold, so I sold a home that I owned subject to, because that was kind of how I was getting started. I just wanted to test it. And then I recently sold one for my husband, subject to, and they have five-year balloons. So while you're waiting, Rory, I'm just starting the clock. I'm just like, okay, well, maybe in five years, it's going to be a problem. But right now, I'm going to just ride it out. <laughs> so yeah. no, I, I totally understand. I find that I have a lot more of a risk tolerance, and then I just sort of build the parachute on the way down. So we're just different. But I think it's... um. You're like my husband more. He's really like worst case scenario. And so we balance each other out. It's good to have that. But <laughs> I mean, you make a good point, though, that this is not um, kind of an all or nothing sort of contract where you're going to wait 28 years to have the buyer pay off the loan for you. These are structured in a lot of different ways. And there's a ton of flexibility so that these loans, this, these arrangements can end after five years um, and the buyer can be forced to refinance or in some cases, revert the property back to you, which is probably even a better thing. You know, these contracts can be structured in a way uh, where the risk is apportioned in a reasonable way for everybody. Yeah. So let's just talk about a little bit like why would someone want to do it? Because I think people go, oh, my God, well, you have to be like pre foreclosure to do something this crazy. Right. But my husband's sale is a really good example. So he was selling a place in Smoky Mountains and that market just got really saturated. So there was just a ton of new builds. His was a new build and it just was not performing. So he was losing money every month. And so when I called the agent that we bought it from, I said, like, hey, what do you think we could get for this property? We had just had it appraised. We owned it less than a year and it was appraised at 850. And he was saying, well, at this point, you know, 775 is what it's worth. But if we put it on the market for 750, we could actually sell it. So I listed it for $875 because it's a subject to. You can get more than market rate. So somebody paid $125,000 more for the opportunity to take over our lower mortgage. And my husband's able to get payments on his equity. So those payments are like $1,650 a month. So he's making cash flow on an asset that otherwise was losing money. And this new operator is taking it over who has five in the area, and he thinks he's going to do a really better job than us, which I hope he does. I hope he's really, really successful. So for us, um, it was kind of a win-win. So that's kind of like on the seller side, because I think a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah, say something, and then I'll tell you about the buyers. Why it's good. <laughs> No, that, that's such a great point. And I've made this yeah. point to you, Rory, and I don't know if I said on this podcast, but like, there is value, there's intrinsic value to having a low interest rate mortgage, it's like a trademark almost. Like there's goodwill that has value to it where you were able to monetize that sale for a higher price than if somebody just purchased it with a traditional loan. It's almost like a liquor license, right? Like in New York City or or taxi medallions back when they were worth a lot more before Uber came around. Like you had this license to take this over and that was worth $125,000 or whatever the number was to you guys. Like that's why... I just, well, uh, two things I think. First, I, I think that more people should be doing this and realizing the intrinsic value and in holding that mortgage with a low rate and selling that along with your property. Um, if these were portable unto themselves, like if a mortgage was portable, then this would make property values even higher for the 90% that are below 4% because then you could sell the current loan with it, like, you know, without any issues. Calling loans, I know Rory and I have talked about this a lot. I don't think any individual banks want to be known as the bank that starts calling loans. 
it just to me seems like a really bad marketing tactic where people are probably not going to want to work with those banks unless all of them do it and systemically everybody says we're going to start calling loans if you're that first one that calls the loan or the second one like people are going to look at you and say i'm not going to deal with those guys in the future if that's how they're going to operate it just doesn't seem like it it passes the marketing test yeah i agree i think that people wouldn't love that Yeah. And then for buyers, some of the benefits are they get the lower interest rate. They can have a lower payment. They don't have to have good credit. So you don't have to qualify for this loan. And that means it can close a lot faster. So you can get into a deal in two weeks. You can usually get a low down payment. So there's a lot of cool things about it. And people are really liking that. As you know, as investors, um, it's easy to qualify for your first five to 10 loans. After that, it gets a lot harder. And so if you're at a place where you don't really qualify, maybe you change jobs and you don't have two years of income, well, these are easier to pick up. Did you guys sell that place furnished? We did. Everything, yeah. So if there's an issue down the line of, of payments being made, you know, mm-hmm. talk to me like I'm a fifth grader. How does how how do you guys get made whole? Um, if it's you know, the furnishings and stuff are part of it, which isn't really the foundation and the walls and all that. What are the steps that you would take? Yeah. So we took a $50,000 down payment, which was really low. It was like less than 10%. Um, But we knew that would be really attractive so we could get a higher purchase price for it. And any money that you actually take, you know, uh, it is shown as income. So then you have to pay taxes on it. So if you don't have a place to put that money right away, then you don't want to take that much, right? So we took a very small amount, and then he was getting the monthly payments every month. So none of that is refundable. So if these people walk away one day, or if they can't make their payment for more than a month, we have rights in our contract that we can quick claim deed it back into my husband's name. And so that means we would have all of the down payment, all of the payments they've made monthly to the equity, and all the payments they made to the mortgage we get to keep. So it's very unlikely someone would just walk away from the property. They would try to fix it. They would try to figure out a plan. So you guys still have equity in this property. Is that how that works? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have a balloon in five years and there's like 300000 in there. And the payments are, I believe they're interest only. I think so. So then he'll still have that 300000 at the end of the day to get back. Do you guys have any access to that capital if you needed to write a HELOC or something? No, you don't. We don't because we no longer own that property. Yeah. Right. Okay. Again, these are like talking like a fifth grader questions because I don't oh, know great. this stuff. This is great. And at some point, how the balloon will come due, and that's yeah. where you're getting your three hundred thousand. Yeah. So hypothetically, back. the person will refinance, right? Mm-hmm. So if they get a whole loan, and by five years, hopefully it will appreciate by then, and then they'll be able to give us the difference. So right, yeah. and hopefully rates are lower then, so they could do the refinance where. The property's appreciated. They'll pull the money out that is owed to you, plus maybe some more in their pocket if they want to. Um, mm-hmm. And then they have their own loan. It could be in their LLC or it could be in their own name, right? I love these deals because they find them to be so open and flexible. Like these are just the terms we came up with that were very advantageous to us. But if I was buying this, maybe I would say like, hey, the balloon in five years is going to be just for the equity, but I want to keep the mortgage forever. And then you can you can work out those terms for the rest of the mortgage length, right? Which is, you know, 29 years in this case. So it all depends. But our loan was not that 
low. It was like 6.5. And I think if you're taking over a 2.8, then you would be like, I need it forever. I'll never see those again, you know? Is there an insurance consideration here at all? Yeah, that's a good question. So that's a muddy one for people. Um, The best, well, so it just depends on who you are, but for us as the sellers, we didn't want to be primary on the insurance anymore because any claims they make go on our claim history. And then that's not great for when we have to go get more insurance, right? So you can do it either way. You can have the seller be primary and then the buyer be additional insured, or you can make the buyer primary and then the seller additional insured. As of an additional insured, you're not really tied to it as much. A lot of management companies get on as additional insured. Rory could probably say something different to me. Um, but I find that us being in that secondary role is not too risky. So, yeah, that's how we did it. Rory, do you have any comments on that? No. And I mean, with the insurance, though, the one of the things that kind of triggers the bank's awareness that a transaction has occurred has is the change uh, in the named insured on the insurance policy. So, you know, you want to make sure you're properly insured. You want to make sure that you can be second insured. That is relatively easy to do. And getting insurance for the buyer is actually relatively easy, but particularly banks that are escrowing, but really all lenders, they may notice that a new certificate of insurance comes in with a different named individual on there. Um, so aside from just what monitoring the registry of deeds, um, getting the insurance certificate is kind of the red flag to the lender um, that says that the, the, the transaction has occurred. That's the reason that some people don't change it. So they'll stay in the primary position and let the IRB additionally insured so that they don't have that risk. But one thing that happens a lot is that someone will own a property in their name and then they'll go and they'll change it into an LLC, right? And it's the same person owning it, but they want to move that. That can technically trigger a due on sale, but it's super rare, right? Because people know that's a common occurrence. So if you sell to somebody who's got an LLC, then maybe they think that's what happened, right? It depends how deep they're going to dig. But in our case, it was in my husband's personal name. We sold it to an LLC. So that feels pretty good to me. So far, so good. Alternatively, people can use trusts too. Trusts are sort of protected because due on sales can't um, be triggered by law if somebody's transferring it into a trust where they're the beneficiary. If I were talking to somebody who is a seller who is considering eventually doing a due on sale agreement, I would encourage them to at least consider putting the property into a trust right now so that way they're better suited when it comes time to transact to keep the, the transaction under the radar. Yeah. So could they just change who the beneficiary is and not actually change the name of the owner? So changing the name of the beneficiary in a lot of places... Um, is a way to kind of conceal the transaction there. Now, the name trustees may, the buyer may want the name trustees to change as well. Um, and then certain states, you know, I'm familiar with New Hampshire, they're very um, strict about, you know, if, you know, if your property is owned by an LLC, if the LLC um, changes owners, they want their transfer tax uh, because they have a really high transfer tax. So they want even those transactions to, um, to get recorded, um, even though the same LLC owns the property, just because um, they will they will fine you if they learn about it later on. Makes sense. Everybody wants their cut. Oh, they yes. supposed to do. Um, you know, th- this is this is kind of next level real estate investor. It's it's it's, it's spoken a lot in our world, 
Uh, but for people just kind of getting into the game and, you know, we have people who listen of all walks of life. You know, we have friends and family who listen, who, you know, I think are strangely fascinated that we know what we know about this world. And we have people that are much further down the line uh, in their real estate journey. I like the way that you position creative financing though, Diana, because you're just good at explaining it in a way that's very matter of fact. Yeah, there's a lot of terminology and a lot of jargon, but I, I think that your approach to explaining it to people it makes it accessible to to your audience of folks, not just here on this podcast, but for the people who are following you across social media and part of your um, your email database. So, you know, I think you've you've found a good recipe to explain a really complicated. Well, it's not that complicated, but it's kind of a complicated thing to people that just don't know the real estate investing space. And you've you've done it pretty well. Well, thanks. Yeah, I think it just comes from practice. I just do it a lot. Like I find something complicated myself and then try to figure out ways to make it less complicated. And then I start telling people about it. And I'm like, ooh, that didn't work. They're really confused. Okay, let's try something else. You know, so it's just doing it until you figure out a good way. I want to get to our final questions we asked of all of our guests. I want to find out what you're working on these days. Two other things I want to mention. Yeah. You and I had a long conversation about influencer world. And, you know, you were kind of, I was the reluctant person to run down this road a little bit. Uh, but I decided to do it anyway. Not that I'm going to be an influencer, but I decided to kind of launch the accounts that we were talking about. And it's been interesting. It's been fun to do. Like, I feel like, you know, just throwing the camera on and, you know, creating stupid little videos that are helpful to some people or not. All I wanted to do was build credibility, frankly. You know, I didn't really want to build influence. And and we had that conversation. And I think it's actually started to work. Like, you know, we're we're about to undertake an endeavor of a co-hosting business in one of our markets um, that I was working on just before we hit record on this. And that's going to be a tall task. But I think that uh, by building it up the way that we're building it and by having the credibility influence that like things like this podcast and our account have, um, it's going to be super helpful to why we're doing it. That was my why. So, you know, despite your, uh, you're saying, wow, it's going to be really tough. It is really tough. It's not easy, you know, to, to come up with things to talk about. I've, I've learned that, but I persevered and I keep going. So, you know, Great. Yeah. thank you for the I mean, advice. I think the, the key word is that you said that it's fun. So if you're having fun mm -hmm. with it, then lean into that. And when it's no longer fun, then do something else. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we actually, we brought on an assistant as well, you know, to help with, we, you know, we have a producer who produces this podcast, but an assistant that helps with some of the marketing for the podcast and some of our business endeavors. I thought about what you said there. And I said, you know, the things that are becoming a drag on my time mentally, you know, and just weighing down on me, I, I pass some of those things on. I've empowered somebody to do them. And, you know, he's doing a great job in setting those things up. So that part didn't become fun anymore. And I found a way to still get it done. So now I am leaning into the fun stuff, like making ridiculous videos of me changing a lighting tube in a grill in the rain in New Hampshire, like I did this past week. And somehow I got nice. it done. You have a connection to Hawaii, obviously. And Maui has had a really, really hard time this year, you know, with all yeah. the the terrible fires. And, um, you know, I, I know that Kauai is not, I have my Kauai t-shirt right there, but Kauai is not Maui, but I've been to Kauai four times. So we're, we feel we feel for the people of Hawaii. Um, it's Kauai is such a gorgeous place, and I can imagine Maui is just as stunning. Um, yeah, have you been back there since all the fires or no? No, we were there two weeks before it happened, and I'm so sad that we didn't go to Lahaina while we were there. We just weren't staying on that side of the island, and one time we'd driven kind of past that part of the island just to go snorkeling. Um, but because it's more of a tourist hub, it wasn't something that we always visited. 
Um, but I have so many lovely memories of they used to have like a really fun Halloween event there. And um, just as a kid, I mean, I, I've lived in Maui since I was two and a half and then lived there till college. And so there's just, yeah, lots of memories. I was really watching everything like right as it was happening. Um, and I noticed that it, I'm not one that follows the news too much. And it was kind of like toxic on my system. So um, I went to Burning Man recently and had like 10 days off of any kind of social media. And so I haven't quite gotten back in the loop. I am curious, you know, where things are at this point, because there were like a thousand people missing and a pretty high death toll. But luckily, the people I know on the island um, are fine. And I've only heard of a few of my personal friends that lost homes. I don't know. It's pretty sad. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no other way to characterize it. I, at least you had the chance to be there for a little bit as one of your weddings, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, on a different part of the island. But yes. And, you know, I think for people that want to still go to Hawaii, like it's a part of the island for sure. But there's so many other parts that are still open and available. So go to Maui still. They need the tourism for sure. Yeah. And Burning Man, you got out of, from the mud? Were you still Yeah. I don't know. I think the news is needing some, uh, they're needing some extra content or something, but it was fine. <sighs> yeah, Burning Man is our annual thing. We love to go there. We've been going, this was my sixth year in a row. So yeah, we wouldn't miss it, even with the rain. The news, they grabbed onto like Diplo and who was it? Like someone else was walking out there like for days and hitchhiked out or something and it became a story. <laughs> Well, why don't we get to our final questions we ask of all of our guests just to wrap things up. And then uh, we'd love to hear where people can learn more about you. First of those questions, if you can get on stage for half an hour, which you've done and talked about any subject in the world, which you've done with zero preparation, what would that be? Oh, man. Well, with zero preparation, all the topics that I normally teach on would be really easy. But I think the things that that I feel more passionate about even is, is just people finding their true nature. And I think that's something that I learned from being in Burning Man. I do think it makes me a better person every year as I peel back another layer of like who I really want to be and why I want to be this way and how I want to live um, more connected to community and, and vulnerability. So yeah, I think those are the things that the world needs to hear if we were talking about a stage. Yeah. You have such a good balance between, you know, that part of your life where you're really digging deep and, and living the life that you want to live, but also like nuts and bolts. I got to get stuff done. Like I like making money, you know, and the, those two things. I like are not, money. Right. Yeah, and that's what's interesting. Really yeah. Those, those yeah. things are not diametrically opposed. Like you should enjoy your life living and having these awesome experiences around the world. And you should like making money because, hey, you know, let's face it. The money helps fuel some of those things, right? You're, it, it's, it, we're not ashamed to say it. We all like making money. Yeah. Um, second question we have, tell us something that happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today. Hmm. I think just watching my parents not be good at money. You know, they, they had a lot of struggle. They were always living paycheck to paycheck. There were times that we had food stamps and no insurance and yeah, it was just very simple growing up. And I just thought it didn't seem like everyone else was struggling. 
Like it seemed like they were struggling, but then there might be some other ways to go about it. And I think that really informed me to look outside of my family's dynamic and what I'm being taught there and do something else. And so I think it would have been really easy to just follow in their footsteps and do the exact same thing and suffer myself. And I wasn't about that. So just kind of reminding myself to sometimes like pop out and be like, is there more? Get like more of a meta view and ask people if I want something different. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard for people to do that, to look beyond what they see every day. Uh, but, you know. It, totally. Yeah. So it, take, it takes an open mind to be able to do that. Uh, final question. Uh, besides 30 Day Stay, tell us something you're listening to or watching or reading these days. Ooh, I'm listening to Storyworthy. That one's really good. So it's a guy who won the Moth Grand Slam. So the Moth podcast is all about telling stories. Um, and so this guy has won it a few times and he teaches people how to structure stories and tell good stories. And so the book is obviously full of stories. Um, and so it's a really fun listen. And I would love to be able to tell better stories. So, yeah, that's a good one. Well, storytelling and sales are go hand in hand. And I think you're doing a really good job with both. So, you know, you're learning something from it. Where could people learn more about you if they want to? We'll, we'll link up your book, your Amazon book. So you don't have to get the whole URL for that. But like, where where could people learn more about you, Sienna? Yeah. So the easiest is my website, Sienna McIntyre, it's just my name.com. Um, and then I'm the most active on Instagram, but I'm on all the socials. Yep. Rory, where could people learn about you? Um, you can find me at RoryGill.com. And from there, you can see um, all the different ways that I can help you and all the different ways you can get in touch with me. All right. If you want to be on this podcast, you can reach out to me, Jason, at nexthometitletown.com. We'll get you set up if we have some time. Um, and we appreciate five-star reviews. And any questions and comments that you have, we respond to all of those. Ziada, this has been lovely. Thank you. We really appreciate your insight, your energy, um, your experience. And you know, this has been a great conversation. I really thank you so much for being part of this. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. And on behalf of Rory and me, we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye.